What a wonderful time of worship this morning, right, church? Wow, what a weekend. We started with uh, the dinner last night and uh, turned this chapel back into a cafeteria. And the food table extended from in front of this platform all the way to the back. And those of you who were here, you probably went home with a food coma, <laughs> which means you slept really well. And, uh, and here you are this morning. Uh, there is something about the word fellowship, and I think it's often misunderstood or underemphasized in the church. Uh, Bill McClellan took us there this morning in the prayer time before service. It was powerful. But when the Bible says in Acts 2.42 that they were given to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship and prayer, you get this concept that along with the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread and prayer, they had fellowship too. That would be, an, that would be a wrong understanding of the original Greek language in that sentence. You cannot have the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread and prayer outside of a community of fellowship. It is essential, it is foundational, it's necessary. And so what we experienced last night was true fellowship. It had nothing to do with food, it had to do with the fact that we all in common have Jesus Christ as our Savior. And it brings odd people together. Weirdos, unique individuals, real characters, and makes them one in Jesus Christ. That's what we experienced. I shared with uh, three men before service outside earlier, and I told Rini this last week or this past week, the Lord gave me a gift this Christmas season and one that I am indebted to him for and could never repay. He reminded me of a vision that someone, or a dream that someone had close to 15, 16 years ago. I had just become the pastor at First Church of God here in Vero Beach. Couldn't, I probably was there for maybe, I don't know, three to six weeks or months. I'm not even, it was early in the ministry. And a young man came to me in his early 20s. He had been attending every week. I saw him sitting over on the left every week he'd come. He was actually a member at First Baptist Church here in, West, here in uh, Vero Beach. Yet, he would come to our service. And after one of the services, he came up to me and said, Pastor Greg, God gave me a dream last night, and you were in it. And I said, oh, and immediately my thought is, okay, here we go, you know. The guy had a, you know, a bad pizza last night, and, and uh, so he shared with me. And I knew this young man to be, in the short time that I had known him, a godly man. Uh, uh, he had a pure heart. I, I loved his spirit. And he said, Pastor, the Lord has shown me that uh, there's going to come a day somewhere in the future that you're going to come under a great deal of uh, wounding. And I don't know if it's connected to sickness or if it's connected to uh, the ministry, but you're going to go through a difficult time. But in the dream, the Lord showed me 
that coming out of that time is going to be a day far better than prior to that time. That was a vision that the Lord gave a young man about you, about Vero Bible Fellowship, and the beauty of this fellowship, the joy of this fellowship, the goodness, the giving. I've never been, I, I've been in the ministry, I told the elders, 40 years this year. I couldn't believe it when I added it up. Started in 1981. And I've never in all my days seen a church with a spirit of love and giving like this church. It is truly a gift of God. A gift of God to each of us and a gift of God to this community. Next, this coming Wednesday, I will be meeting at the uh, county building in the commissioner's chamber where we will come into, because of our generosity to this middle school in helping students who are going without, and we've come to the tune of about $15,000 that we've given over the course of the last year and a half, two years. Isn't that wonderful? That was never a campaign. We never said, you know, this week let's give. We just, if you want to participate in that above and beyond what you give to the church, go ahead, 15000 and they want to make us community partners in public. They want us to be there, and they want to recognize this church for its faithful giving, having an impact even in a secular culture. Isn't that wonderful? You know what happened last week when we were able to give significantly several thousand dollars to the tune now of in the ballpark of 36000 to one member of our family who lost her husband and is raising three small children, this congregation, out of love, rose up and gave. And all of this, I believe, God saw long before this church was in existence. He knew that there would be people who would come together with a heart of true, simple, and pure devotion to Jesus Christ. And I want to thank you for being that congregation. It is a joy to be part of the pastoral team. And I'm just one of several pastors in this church. We have a team of elders. Man, we are so blessed what those, those guys are committed to. We met again this past Wednesday, spent an hour and a half simply working through the names of the members of this body and praying over you. That is, that is the commitment to shepherd this flock. And so I am thankful to be just part of, just like you, and isn't it a wonderful thing to be in a church that loves Jesus and loves others? Amen? Amen. All right. Well, take your Bible. We're going to get in, and I appreciate the, the, the reading of the Word, and we will end up, we're going to start there. I'm sorry, we'll end up there, but I want you to take your Bible, if you will, and turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to start in Colossians, and then we're going to finish our time in Hebrews. Last Sunday, we covered three of the five things that we receive from God the Father through Christ the Son when He came to this earth. In this Christmas message, we started with not looking at a baby born in a manger, but the conversation that Jesus had with God before the Christmas Eve, the first Christmas Eve when He came as a baby. This is a conversation that took place in heaven while the earth was clueless, had no idea what was about to happen, heaven and the angels and Christ himself were rejoicing over what was about to take place on earth. 
And the reason he was coming was to do these five things. And there's no way that any one of these five would have been achieved if he didn't die. He had to suffer death to fulfill these five wonderful blessings that God gives us. So I want to pick up and I want to just review the three things that we talked about and then cover the last two that we didn't cover last week. But let's quickly go through. In Colossians 1.15 it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Remember, firstborn does not mean, in this text it does not mean chronologically first. He was not the first person born. Um, Adam and Eve gave birth. That's the first birth. But it means highest in rank and privilege. Just like Israel was God's firstborn. Was Israel the first nation on the earth? No, it was not. But it was highest in rank and privilege from God's view. And for by him, here it is, look, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So this little baby in the manger that we celebrate at Christmas time, that might have been the beginning of his earthly existence as, as incarnate Christ. It was not the beginning of his existence as God. He has always existed. Everything was created in him, through him, by him, and for him. Verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So long before, long before there was a baby born in Bethlehem, there was a second person of the Trinity, fully God, who came to earth fully man. Jesus' birth was simply God's plan to redeem us from our sins. He became incarnate, meaning he became flesh and blood. He became like us in every way he was like us. But he never sinned. He never faced sickness. He was able then by that to go to the cross for us. Now take your Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. Now that we've established who Jesus is. See, this is the Christmas season. And most of us, and certainly the world, wants to dwell on this little baby in a manger. And to the world, that has all kinds of connotations or meanings. But none of them are the right ones. Like I said last week, I watch these Hallmark movies with my wife, Rini. And, and they always seem to get around to the reason for the birth of Jesus. Some of, some of them don't, but some of them do. But they always hit the secondary reasons why he came. If they hit that, nobody talks about the primary reason for his coming. So let's get into it here. Hebrews 10, verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Look at that. You've prepared a body for me. Prepared. Past or future tense. It hasn't happened yet. 
Jesus is not yet incarnate. He's talking to God the Father on the eve of the first birth, the first you know, Christmas Eve, the, the birth of Jesus. There's this conversation going on. He says, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, this is the Lord speaking to God the Father, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So on the eve of the first Christmas, the Son of God is saying goodbye to Father God. That relationship that he's known for all eternity past is about to change. He's fully aware that he must come to earth and become the fulfillment of the Old Testament law. He is the once for all sacrifice for the sins of mankind. He alone, when clothed in flesh and blood, is going to be able to satisfy the sin debt of man by becoming a blood sacrifice on the cross. Now, there are many secondary reasons why he came. Let me give you some. He came to show us God, true. He came to teach truth, true. He came to fulfill the law, true. He came to offer us the kingdom, true. He came to teach those who didn't understand God, true. He came to reveal and be a demonstration of God's love, true. He came to heal the sick, true. But there is only one primary reason for the birth of Jesus Christ that you see here in Hebrews. He came to suffer and to die. That is why he came. Jesus Christ, this Christmas season, should be remembered as the one who came incarnate, born in the flesh and blood of a baby, in order that he might grow up and die for mankind. Bethlehem only happened so Calvary could happen. Bethlehem should never be separated from Calvary. The emphasis is not Bethlehem. The emphasis is Calvary. He was only a baby so that he could become a man and die. He lived in order to die. Okay? Now, the five things that had to happen through Jesus Christ, death on the cross. Without him dying on the cross, these five things would not have happened for you and I. You want to talk about five gifts of Christmas that'll supersede any gift you have under the tree, any gift you can think of in this world? Here they are. Paul said in Galatians 4, 4, and 5, but when the fullness of time had come, when, in other words, when man who was lost in his sin, had no way of escape, no way to redeem himself back to God. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So the first point that we looked at last week, I'll just go through these quickly, the first three, he had to, he had to become our substitute, number one. He had to become our substitute. The Old Testament prophet Ezekiel said, the soul that sins shall die. The apostle Paul said, the wages of sin is death. If you look at Hebrews chapter 2, if you will please, verse 5, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere 
What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him, God the Father made Christ the Son, for a little while, lower than the angels, he would come in human form. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That's the world we live in. Not everything right now is in subjection of Christ. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of what? The suffering of death. Here's why. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So sin by the justice of God is punishment by death. If I sin, I will die. If you sin, you will die. If you and I have to bear our own punishment for sins, we die. We die physically, we die spiritually, we die eternally. If you're here today and you have not received Jesus Christ by faith as your personal Savior, if you have not believed in Him and the work that He performed on the cross for your sins, you are spiritually dead and you will face physical death and spiritual death and eternal damnation in hell. I don't share that with joy. I don't share that hoping that some will go there. Even the Bible says that he wishes that none would perish, but that all would come to eternal life. But that's just the reality. You have to be saved. So he became our substitute. He went to the cross in our place. He took on our sins. Now, let me explain something doctrinally that's very important. Jesus, when he hung on the cross, did not hang on the cross because he was a sinner. The Bible says he took on our sins. The best explanation is to go to the Old Testament where they had the Day of Atonement and they would take a, a lamb and they would put their hands on the lamb, placing on the lamb their own sins. And then the priest would execute the lamb. He, the lamb took on the sin of the people. It became the sacrificial lamb. The lamb itself had not sinned, but it became the sacrificial lamb. That's what Jesus, when he hung on the cross, he took on our sins. He became the sacrificial lamb. And when God saw him on the cross as the sacrificial lamb, God the Father poured out every ounce of anger, wrath, and judgment that he had held back against sin, and he put it on Jesus. And that's why Jesus said, why hast thou forsaken me? Because all of a sudden, he represented us. We should have been the one hanging on that cross between the two thieves. But it was Jesus who was our substitute. Secondly, he had to become our salvation. He had to become our salvation. He had to bear our punishment. Hebrews 2.10, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, in other words, to bring many to salvation. Aren't you glad that the Lord Jesus came to bring people to salvation? Wow, what a blessing. He became our salvation, okay? 
should make the, here it is, look at this title given Jesus, the founder of their salvation. Who is the Lord to you? He's the founder of my salvation. That's who he is. He, and, and, but, but to do that, to make him the founder of salvation, what did God have to do? He had to go through, perf- he had to be made perfect through suffering. <clears throat> salvation was not cheap. Jesus, the Son of God in the flesh, had to die in order to make perfect suffering. He became the founder of our salvation in his death. He is our suffering Savior. That little baby in a manger, I read for you last week what John MacArthur wrote. I thought it was beautiful where he talked about the little baby that was born had these beautiful little baby hands. Can you imagine, you know, you've seen little babies. We've got babies in our church. Little baby hands, precious little hands that had been formed perfectly. Those hands were formed on Jesus as a baby for one purpose, to drive nails through them. That's why he came. That little head, that cranium that was perfectly formed. We don't know if he was a bald-headed baby or if he had a lot of hair. But here's what we know. That little head that was formed was to receive a crown of thorns embedded in it. Those feet were going to walk among men, and one day those feet would have nails driven through them. That is why Jesus came, to be our salvation. He is our salvation. The name Jesus actually means God is salvation. Isn't that wonderful? Hebrews 5, 8, and 9, don't turn, I'll just read it for you. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Thirdly, not only was he our substitute, our salvation, but he had to become our sanctification. He's our sanctifier. Now go back, if you look again at verse 11 in Hebrews 2, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Let's break it down. To sanctify, sanctification comes from the Greek word hagiazo. It means to make holy. Jesus is our sanctifier. Jesus has the ability to make us holy. I want to explain this again to you because I don't think we can ever over-communicate this marvelous truth. You, if you are saved from God's view, you are holy. Right here, right now in this service, if you're saved from God's view, you are holy. And I'm going to explain it to you. Through his death and our faith in him, believing and receiving him as Savior, we are declared holy. Your salvation places you inside this positional truth. Your salvation, which is an event, 
Listen, salvation is not a process. You can't get saved one day, lose it, and get saved the next time. Like, like I grew up in going to summer youth camp, every year I'd get saved again. Some of you had the same experience. That's an improper understanding of the word salvation and how Jesus brings us out of death and into life. You can't keep going from death to life, from death to life, from death to life. Once Jesus brings you out of death through salvation, you are eternally alive in him. That ought to, that, you should get excited about that. The whole place ought to be erupting. We ought to be hanging from the chandeliers in this place with that kind of information. That's wonderful news. Then he, Listen, God the Father sees your faith in Jesus Christ the Son, and therefore God the Father sees you as holy. Hagios. You are holy. Turn to your spouse and say, I am holy. Amen. Those of you who are single, just know you are holy. Okay? Now, subsequent to our salvation, which is an event, after we're saved, not before, if you're not saved, you're not sanctified. And sancti where salvation is an event, sanctification for the believer is an ongoing process. So the second you're saved, now you enter into this process of sanctification. What is that? To be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, Romans says. The sanctifier now sanctifies. The one who saved you now sanctifies you. Okay? Sanctification is the process. It has nothing to do with salvation. It can only begin after we're saved. It becomes your way of life after you're saved. Sanctification, let me explain what it is. Sanctification is striving in practice what we already are in position. Sanctification is you striving to flesh out, to live out who you are positionally from God's view. What are you from God's view? Holy! Now you are striving by the Holy Spirit, conforming you to Jesus, to practice holiness. You cannot say that if you're saved that you have every right now to go out and sin like the devil. To do that would mean that you have not been sanctified, which means you have, you're not truly saved. True saved individuals will strive to practice who they are positionally in the eyes of Almighty God. They are holy. So when you sin, which is like every day, Throughout the day, wrong thoughts, wrong attitude, impatience, frustration, anger. Frustration leads into anger. I'm not talking about justifiable anger. It's not righteous anger. It's unrighteous anger. I shouldn't even have to explain that because all of us live it. We know what it feels like to have unrighteous anger. Listen, even in those moments, while you are sinning from God's view, you are fully perfect and holy. That's what Jesus put on you. He clothed you after your salvation or in your salvation. He clothed you in his righteousness. 
you are as righteous in the eyes of God as his son. Now that just blows some of your minds, I know, because it goes against what you've been told. I'm telling you from the word of God, this is what it is. This is what the Bible says. Hebrews 10, 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, those who are striving to practice what they already are positionally. In other words, while you're being sanctified, you're completely holy in God's eyes. Now that ought to allow you to walk out of here today with a huge smile on your face. You should be glad that you came to church today where the word of God set you free from the bondage to sin. Listen, friends, after receiving by faith the imputed holiness of Jesus, don't ever question whether there's something in this universe that can somehow take that away. You have been perfected forever through the offering of his body, and if you could lose it, then Jesus didn't do it right on the cross. And if he didn't do it right on the cross, God would have left him in the tomb. But the fact is, three days later, up from the grave, he arose. He did it perfectly. He satisfied the anger, the wrath, the justification of God to put us to death through him, our substitute, so that we can walk and live in liberty and freedom in Christ. Amen? All right, now we're just getting to the sermon. Number four, because we covered all that last week. Maybe not with the passion, but I'll tell you, it just blesses me every time I read the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is loaded. I'm doing the teachings now for the next three months over at the Women's Refuge on Friday morning, and we're going through the book of Ephesians. You talk about a powerful book. I mean, I'm getting more blessed. I don't know if the ladies are getting blessed, but I'm getting blessed teaching it as I'm being reminded of who I am, that he knew me before the foundation of the world. He knew you. Wow. He knew there'd be a Vero Bible Fellowship long before any of us ever met each other. I don't care where you met him. You say, oh, I met, we grew up together, went to high school together. I don't care. God knew that you'd be worshiping at Vero Bible Fellowship together long before you were even born. Before you, you were the, you know, you, the apple in your father's eye, God knew you. Amen. And they call that water. Wow. I don't know who doctored that up, but that's pretty good. <laughs> All right. Number four, he had to become our conqueror. Okay, so he's not just our substitute, our salvation, not just our sanctifier. He became our conqueror. Hebrews 2.13, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things as you and I, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Look what he says here. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. See, Satan's great power is death. It's the one thing that Satan has over man. And he knows that the wages of sin is death. He knows that it's appointed to every man to die once. And then the judgment, that's what Satan is fully aware of. So his aim is to keep man living in sin until he dies. Then he knows that he has him forever. 
If he can keep man in sin until he dies, God can't do anything about it. For God to take a man out of hell after he lived a full life of sin and never received Christ, that would be for God to do something that is unholy. This whole idea of universal salvation, it's a false doctrine that's being preached today. That somehow God sends certain people to hell because of their sinfulness, but then at some point in the future, his love wins out, overcomes his justice and holiness, and those people that are in hell go to heaven. Ain't happening. If Jesus gave us the eternality of heaven, and he said, if you're going to heaven, you're going to be there forever, and then he turns right around and says that there's also an eternality to hell, he's not going to mean in heaven it's eternal, but in hell it's not really eternal. After a while you get released and you get to go to heaven. No, no. Eternality of heaven and eternality of hell. Wherever you land when you die, that's it. You have one chance in this life, and you got a full life to give your heart to Christ. But if you don't do it, you will end up in hell. I hate that thought for any human being, but that's the reality of it. Now, other, Satan will keep men trapped until they die. That's his plan. And then God can't touch them. This power over death had to be broken. It had to be broken by man. The power of death could not be broken by God. God couldn't do it for man, wouldn't do it for man. That wouldn't be fair. Man's sin, man needs to suffer for sin. So God had to become a man. This is what makes verse 14 so awesome in our text. Look at it. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. In other words, in order to destroy death, a man would have to die and rise again and leave the trail door open for all men who die. That is what Jesus Christ did. Jesus Christ, our Savior, he came out of that tomb, he exploded out of the shackles of death, and he made the bold proclamation to Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus just completely annihilated, crashed, shook, destroyed the plan of Satan for mankind. Death was overcome by our Lord. Listen, church, Jesus died and rose from the dead. And by doing so, he crushed and destroyed Satan. And here's the best news that you could ever receive. He left the door open for you to overcome death. You too will be raised in Jesus. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus became a man so that he could die as a man, and by his resurrection, he gave man victory over death, victory over hell, victory over the grave. Listen, but he had to be God in human flesh in order to do it. He had to die in order to do it. So Jesus shattered Satan's plan for you. You should be thankful for that. Amen? That little baby in a manger came for one purpose, to die for the sins of mankind. 
He came to shatter and destroy and annihilate and conquer Satan and his power of death in your life. Lastly, he had to become our sympathetic high priest. I, I'm so glad we're ending with this. I'm glad that, that the writer of Hebrews took time to put this at the end. This is so beautiful. Look at verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That's you and I, the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to be made like us in every respect. Why? So that he might become a merciful. If you will, please circle the word merciful in verse 17. Circle that word merciful. And let me tell you what's right next to it. He became merciful so that he might be able to understand us. He became merciful that he might understand us. He became merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, to make, in a simple way of saying it, reconciliation for the sins of the people. Propitiation is much deeper than reconciliation, however. Propitiation is to take on what somebody else deserves. Jesus became our propitiation. He took on our sins. Verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Isn't that wonderful news? In other words, when you go to Jesus Christ to share your heart, Jesus Christ can easily and clearly and confidently say to you, I truly understand what you're going through. I experienced it myself. We're not talking about God sitting in the third heaven trying to relate to what we went through. We're talking about God in the third heaven who came to the first heaven as a little baby who died for us, lived a full life, never sinned, but experienced everything that we experienced. Listen, he experienced hunger. He experienced thirst. He experienced weariness and fatigue. He experienced sleep. He had to sleep like us. He was taught. He grew. He loved. He was glad. He was sad. He carried anger for righteous reasons. But he understood the emotion of anger. He understood indignance and sarcasm thrown at him, just like us. He was grieved. He was troubled. He was overcome by the anticipation of future events. He exercised faith. He read the scripture. He prayed a lot, sometimes through the night. He was moved when he saw a man who couldn't speak Tears fell from his eyes when he looked upon Jerusalem and saw a people that had rejected his message. He had compassion on them. We're talking about Jesus who in every way except for sin and sickness relates to us. This makes him the perfect mediator for us. He completely understands God and he completely understands man. 
And he completely understands that we can't fix for ourselves the problem of our sinfulness. So he came and he took it on himself and fixed it for us. Amen? He was the perfect one to bring the two together. He's a perfect sympathizer. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then therefore go confidently before the throne of grace that we may receive mercy, there it is, understanding, and we might find grace, unmerited favor in our time of need. We can boldly say, Jesus, I want to share this with you, and I don't know that there's another person that has under, can understand what I'm going through. Until you walk in another person's shoes, can you truly understand what they're facing? Because see, each of us have unique personality, each have a unique temperance, temperament. So when things hit us, we hit, it hits us differently. Jesus can relate to every person in this room in their suffering, in their time of need. What a Savior. What a mighty God. There is great reason for the angelic host to announce his coming as a baby in a manger 2,000 years ago. And there is great joy and should be great joy in this room this morning, in this Christmas season, as we think about our Savior came as a little baby that he might die and bring to us these five wonderful things that God could only accomplish for us through death. Take another look at the manger. Who art thou, precious little babe, nestled in the hay? God, I am, come to earth this day. Why didst thou come, sweet little babe, nestled in the hay? To die I came, the price of sin to pay. Who sinned, tender little babe, nestled in the hay? Yours it was that brought me down today. Yours. It's a personal God who died for you. Father, we want to thank you this morning for your love in such a way that you could ex explain that love to us and show us that love through the action of your Son on the cross. Lord Jesus, because you were faithful all the way to the end, God raised you from the dead and seated you today at the right hand of the Father. Today you are worshipped in heaven. Today, the sacrificial lamb is being worshipped. And here on earth, we, in this season of Christmas, are reminded of why you're being worshipped in heaven. And so from our own earthly existence to the best of our ability, 
we too join in with the angelic host and all the creatures of heaven, and we worship you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for becoming our substitute, becoming, Lord, for us a salvation, a sanctifier. Thank you, Jesus. We thank you that here, right now, in this place, you have given us holiness positionally. That's who we are. And now we strive to practice who we truly are in heaven. Father, thank you that you can relate to us. Thank you that you understand our suffering and that you paid the full price so that we could be found in you and find comfort in you in our time of need. You are the perfect mediator between God and man. And you broke down the wall so that we ourselves could approach you in the throne of grace. Hallelujah. And all of God's people said, Amen. Are we blessed or are we blessed? Amen. Listen, that's why we celebrate Christmas. Don't go through this Christmas letting the world give you this superficial reason for why we celebrate. This is why we celebrate. No Bethlehem if there's no Calvary. Amen? God bless you, church. I want to say to you, hey, by the way, uh, Scott, stand up for a second. I want you to, some of you need to meet him after service. This is Scott Arnold. Scott was my youth pastor at Church in the Gardens in Palm Beach Gardens. And uh, you, you won't find anybody who loves people more than that guy right there. I mean, I'm telling you, he loves people. Now he has a team sports ministry down in the Palm Beach County area. He's meeting with these athletes who are getting scholarships to major universities to play football, and he's sharing the gospel with them before they leave high school. That's a great ministry, and uh, he's also the pastor of Journey Church, and I just, I'm so proud of him. I love him. He's a dear friend, and I'm glad he's here today. We're going to go out and have us a big steak afterwards, Scott, okay? Amen. Okay. Love you, church. God bless each of you. Make sure you meet somebody new. Pray with somebody before you leave. Guaranteed, somebody needs your prayers, okay? God bless.